letter of the Lord once again to the epistle of James, that little letter written by the very brother of our Lord Jesus. And would you find chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. This is our summer series of messages as we're plowing through this very timely and relevant epistle. Again, penned by James, the brother of our Lord. James 1, 9 through 11 is our text, and here again, the word of the Lord. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. And with the scripture read, now may the Lord bless the preaching and the hearing of his holy word. So far in our study of this letter, as we've engaged it this summer, we've noted how James has summoned all Christians everywhere to a life of joy. And that life of joy is to be lived even when, and maybe even especially in times that are turbulent and difficult, made so by the many trials, the various kinds of trials that we often encounter. And we might also remember that James says that kind of life of joy and rejoicing is made possible by by something we know. We know beyond all doubt, we know with absolute certainty that by means of these very struggles, the Lord is producing in his people this beautiful quality, this virtue of steadfastness. In other words, the trials, the various kinds of trials that seemingly come from nowhere, those are God's ordained means to bring us Christian maturity and Christ-like virtue. And that means that absolutely nothing that we're going through or shall go through or have gone through in the past was or is accidental or random. Everything that comes into our lives comes from the hand of God and from the hand of God, our Father, who loves us with an eternal love and who will never abandon us and never fail us. But we've also learned that to see things that way, to see things the way James has outlined them here in the first few verses, requires God's wisdom. We must have wisdom to see things the way they really are. And so there's that great section in the first few verses about the need for wisdom. And and James gives us the promise that if we lack it, and and we all do, if if we lack wisdom, we're to ask of God who loves to give. And he loves to give wisdom, and he gives without reproach. He gives without shame on us, without embarrassing us. He gives without frustration. He gives generously to whoever will ask for it. And then we come to the verses before us this morning. And here we find James giving two illustrations of the trials that may come out of nowhere that he's been talking about. He is going to give two illustrations of the kind of circumstances that we might meet as disciples of Jesus. And these two illustrations are representative of anything we might face in our life as a Christian. James could have chosen from, from an endless list of possible circumstances that would, that would encounter us. He could have talked about good health or sickness or the loss of something that we love. He could have talked about a sudden or unexpected gain that was very pleasant. He could have talked about any disaster or calamity that might come or a time of peace. 
He could have talked about a relational struggle or a season of deep spiritual doubt and warfare or a time of victory and relative peace on the battlefront. But he's chosen these two because they are immediately relevant and immediately understandable. They are very common. And you can see them here. He is talking about the situation of poverty and the situation of wealth. We could either encounter a season of great need, and we've all been there, or we could encounter a season of great abundance, and we've probably all been there. And so here are two illustrations of the kind of circumstances that might come, one bad, one good, and James has a word of wisdom for both. You can see in verse 9, he's talking first about the lowly brother, or as one translation reads, the brother of humble circumstances. Now, this is the brother who is suffering through a time of financial or material need. His present circumstances are not so good. And then in verses 10 and 11, he will speak about the rich, or the one who's enjoying a time of great abundance and blessing and material prosperity, and his circumstances are very good. So one is not so good, and one is very good. But there's a word for both. And this is a word for all, wherever you are, in whatever circumstance, be it a good one or a bad one. Now, before we dig in and start considering the specific things that James says to these two classes of people, there are some some initial observations we want to make that are very important as we get ready to plow into this text. And the first thing that we notice by way of initial observation is that both the lowly brother and the rich man are called to boast. Both are called to boast. The poor man is to boast or to find his joy in his exaltation. While the wealthy man, the one who is experiencing a time of great abundance, is to find his reason for rejoicing in his humiliation. The believer in Christ who has very little of the world's goods is to have a life of joy as he thinks about what James calls his exaltation. And then we flip the the coin, we look at the other side of the coin, the believer in Christ who has all that he needs, who is healthy and has a full bank account and has no discernible problems, that person is to live a life of radiant joy while he thinks about his humiliation. But everyone is to boast. Everyone is to rejoice. Joy and rejoicing is appropriate for all believers all the time. There's a second observation. Both the poor man and the rich man need wisdom in order to see the hand of God in their respective circumstances. Both need a heavenly outlook on their circumstances. Both need wisdom. The lowly brother, as we're going to see in a moment, needs to view his situation from the vantage point of eternity, while likewise the rich believer who has an abundance of things now, he must be very careful to view his situation from an eternal perspective as well. Both The rich and the poor, the well-off and the not-so-well-off are called to look past the obvious, to look past the merely external and to see their situation 
through the eyes of God's wisdom. And especially, they must think about the future, what's coming for both. This is another way of saying they must keep before them the unfolding drama of redemption. God is at work in history. And there are times of blessing and times of need. In times of healing, in times of suffering, in times of prosperity, in times of adversity. And God is working in human history and in your history and in my history to bring about the consummation of the ages. There is a purpose, but it takes wisdom to see past the obvious and to see how what is happening in our lives plays a role in the greater story of salvation, God's story. No one can afford to live by what appears to be. Everybody must assess their current situation in light of God's wisdom, in light of the future. You might look with me real quickly at how James will say this very thing in chapter 5. Let's just take a quick preview and let me read verses 7 and 8. This is what James is talking about. A bit later in the epistle, he will talk about the future the perspective we need. And, and in chapter 5, he, he gives very practical and inspired wisdom. He says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. And so that's a way of saying that the poor man who is suffering and things aren't going so well, and the rich man who has all he needs, they both, they both must keep in mind that the Lord will have the last word. The Lord is coming, that this life is not all there is. They must view their lives in light of eternity. You see, this is something that separates you and me and the church from the world. Outside of Christ, everyone else lives for the moment, for the moment, because that moment is all they have. Everyone outside of Christ lives only for this life, because this life is the only life they have. Their perspective outside of Christ is merely horizontal, and their happiness and their sense of well-being fully depend upon the presence of pleasant circumstances. That's why we look out and we are baffled sometimes by how people live obsessed with getting all the life they can now, all they can stuff into that life now, because this, as far as they are concerned, is all they have, but that is not so for those of us who know Christ, this life is not all there is. Our present circumstances are not the way it's always going to be. Things will change, and they will change dramatically. And so we think of eternity and not simply of time. We as believers live each passing fleeting moment of this life in view of what will happen next. The Son of God will come. The Lord will return to judge the living and the dead, and we will be ushered into our final, real, eternal home, the heavenly city, New Jerusalem. And this is what wisdom teaches us. We need wisdom to view our circumstances from God's perspective. Well, then another observation that I think is very critical as we begin unfolding this passage 
it is apparent that both the poor man and the wealthy man are to know, and wisdom will teach them this, they are to know and to believe that God has orchestrated their current situations and status in life. They are to know that. Uh, This is another way of saying that both the man who is bereft of all earthly goods and those with an abundance of blessings must recognize that God is sovereign over their status and over their possessions and over everything about them. Nothing simply happened to them. Where they are and what they are experiencing is not the product of a long chain of accidental events or good luck. Rather, poverty and plenty come from the hand of the Lord, both from His hand. And the same can be said for sickness and health. And the same can be said for life and for death. And the same can be said for adversity and for peace and for difficulty and for ease. The same can be said for struggle and rest and peace and war. God is sovereign Overall, in the book of 1 Samuel, there's a a prayer prayed by Hannah, the mother of the prophet Samuel, and her prayer is so instructive at this very point. Just listen to the prayer of this wisdom, the wisdom flowing from the heart of Hannah, who wants only to serve her king. Here is her prayer. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and he makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit seats of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. Now, that's, that's wisdom. Here is a woman in need who wants a son, who cannot have a son, and she throws herself on the mercy of a sovereign God and says, Lord, you raise the dead Lord, you send the rain. Lord, you send the thunder and the lightning. Lord, you send the famine. Lord, you are Lord. And my situation is firmly in your hand. And this is what James is saying about poor and rich and sick and healthy and well-off and not so well-off and struggling and resting, whatever you're in. It is under the sovereign control of God. The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 45, 7 quotes the Lord as saying this, I form light, I create darkness, I make well-being, I create calamity, I am the Lord who does all these things. Those who would be wise, 
Those who would embrace godly wisdom must recognize his sovereign hand in all things. Wisdom, God's wisdom teaches us that God is always at work. He is always in control. He is always Lord over all things, people, events, places, and happenings. If one is poor, the Lord is Lord of their poverty. If one is rich, the Lord is Lord of their abundance. And the same can be applied to your circumstances, whatever they are, good or bad. The Lord reigns over your circumstances. And again, this is a distinctly Christian way to view the world. Everyone else views the world as in the hands of fate or chance or karma or some impersonal force, the stars and their movement, some impersonal force that has an influence on their lives. But no Christian could play the devil's game Christians believe that God reigns. And if you're going to be at peace, you must raise your vision of the kind of God you worship. He must be a God who is all sovereign. Now, with that in mind, we come to the lowly brother. And this morning, we're only going to look at the lowly brother. And the next time we gather together, we'll look at God's word to the well-off brother. But for the next few minutes, what does God say to those who are suffering, to those who are experiencing a dark providence? Needs are not met. In this case, it's the lowly brother. Well, the first thing we note is he's a brother. And there's that beloved word that James uses, the highest Christian title that applies to men and women equally. We are brothers. And the reason we are brothers is we are sons of God in Christ, and we are brothers of Jesus. And so the brother of Jesus reminds the church that the church is a company, a band of brothers, brothers in the Lord. And we share the tightest unity, the tightest family connections there are. And he addresses this poor one as a brother. He is a brother, but he's lowly. He's a lowly brother. The ones to whom James wrote, as we've already observed, were scattered abroad in the ancient Greco-Roman world. Persecution had sent them on their way. And many in those churches to whom James is writing were not well off. They were suffering. Many had left everything they owned way back in Jerusalem. And they went on the road running from persecution. And we can think today of all the refugees running from War And they take nothing with them but the clothes on their back. And there were many in the audience to which James wrote that were in that, in that way of life. They had very few things. And so they were among the poorer classes. And they're suffering. And that's what the word lowly implies. They are of low degree, literally. One New Testament commentator really strikes a note. He says, this brother, this lowly brother, is experiencing... Grinding poverty. He's on the road. He's away from home. He's scratching for a living and for the next meal. And so his lot, his life is very difficult. Things are not going well. And you can imagine the anxiety and the worry that would be associated with such lowly status. He didn't do anything, he wasn't lazy. It's not that his poverty is due to an undisciplined life or some 
disobedience in his life. No, circumstances have led to his poverty. This is beyond his control. And so this is one of those various trials that we face. And James is going to tell him there's a purpose. There's a good purpose. God, even in this poverty, is producing steadfastness. And so in the poverty of these brothers and sisters in Christ, there will be a time for their faith to grow, their faith to be strengthened. They are to count it a joy. But the exact message to this lowly brother is to start boasting. Let him, and this is a command. This is not a suggestion from James. It's it's in the form of a command. Let him boast in his exaltation. The word boast in our English translation strongly implies the note of rejoicing and glorying in and taking pride in. Taking a godly pride in his situation and even celebrating it. And what's even, what's even more incredible is that James is really saying, let him boast and keep on boasting. And tomorrow let him boast and the day after let him boast. And let boasting and rejoicing be the distinguishing quality of his life. Let him be a person who just bursts forth with joy all the time. It's an amazing, an amazing thing. He's in the pressure cooker of financial hardship and poverty. He's lonely. She's lonely. There's no family except the church family. The emperor has chased them down and would love to see them dead. And so James says, rejoice. And I know what you're thinking. I know what you're tempted to think. You're tempted to think the same thing I'm tempted to think. This is nuts. This is ridiculous. It makes no sense at all. And it doesn't make sense if our wisdom is only worldly. But if we have God's wisdom, it will begin to make sense. Now, what does worldly wisdom tell us to do? In such a terrible condition. Worldly wisdom will say, you got a right to be upset. You got a right to complain. Look what has happened to you. You don't deserve this. Worldly wisdom says, you need relief. You need to go for help. You need to get some relief. You need to appeal for aid. You need to start desperately praying that God will get you out of this. And that's what worldly wisdom says. But what does godly wisdom say? It says boast. There's a fine, fine commentary on the book of James written by John Blanchard. Many of you are familiar with John's work. And I would highly commend his little commentary to you. In fact, it's not such a little commentary, but I would highly recommend that to you. And he he says, in in purely material terms... The command that James is giving makes no sense at all. For most people, there's a feeling that happiness goes hand in hand with prosperity, like misery goes hand in hand with poverty. I mean, shouldn't we be miserable and walk around with that miserable expression on our face? Shouldn't we make sure everybody knows we're not having a good hair day? 
But God's wisdom says count it all joy. Now, not that we shouldn't pray for relief, and not that prayers for relief are not commanded and appropriate. This morning, we've just prayed for relief for the suffering, and that's a good thing. That's a godly thing. The Lord wants us to do that, but the first order of business, according to James, isn't getting out of it, but it's boasting in it, boasting in it. And the reason that James says that the first order of business when we're suffering is boasting is because the aim that God has in view is endurance. Endurance. Perseverance. Remember the word steadfastness? We've already seen that in the first few verses. God's purpose through all that he brings into our life, both good and bad, is that we might endure, that we might be made strong, and this for the glory of Christ. Now, maybe you're thinking, well, James is the only one who says this in the New Testament. (laughs) Maybe you're thinking that. And we'll just add up the verses. There are more verses that don't say this than do say this. Well, if you try that, you'll have a problem. And those of you who are really awake on this holiday weekend, you're going to recognize that we've already read a passage of Scripture that says this very thing. Listen to Paul again, Romans 5. Listen to these words. But we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance And endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love, Paul is saying, God is loving us in our sufferings. He is producing endurance and hope, and he is filling us, as Paul says, with the Holy Spirit. Now, this is what James is saying, and James and Paul are not the only ones who say that, but time won't let me prove that for you, but believe me. It is the consistent message of the Word of God that when things aren't going so well, the first thing I should do is boast. Now, James is not talking about a pie-in-the-sky boasting. You know, a shallow smile that says, yeah, everything's fine, man. He is not talking about positive thinking, that, you know, if I just think positive thoughts, I'm bound to have a good day. James is not even, not even on that map at all. He is talking about something real. I must boast in view of something real. It isn't just a change of attitude. It isn't just positive thinking. I have to have something in mind that is real, real, something that affects my status and my future. And what is it? What is it? Well, James says it is His exaltation. I should boast in my exaltation. Or as one translation reads, I should glory in my high position. So James says, if you're suffering, stop and think about and give glory to God for your status, your high position. And what is that position? What is the exaltation of which James speaks? Well, there are some 
elements to it that you'll recognize. First, this lowly believer and any suffering believer, number one, is a child of God. You, you are a child of God. You're a child of the King. Because of God's redeeming love in Jesus Christ, you are not what men think you are. They love to divide us into classes and races and the haves and the have-nots and this class and that class and this strata and that economic level and this economic level and that political affiliation and that political affiliation, but the Lord will have none of that. Our status is child of God. This lowly brother needs to remember that he is a member of God's royal family. There is royal blood in his veins. And there is in yours too. This lowly brother has received this honor, child of God, totally as a result of God's grace. He didn't earn it. He didn't work for it. It was sovereignly bestowed upon him by God's elective mercies. James will say that very thing in verse 18 of this same chapter. He'll say in verse 18, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we might be firstfruits of his creatures. And so James says, this poor one, By God's mercy, by God's eternal love, by God's predestinating grace, this poor one belongs to Jesus. This poor one is a child of God. This poor one is in Christ. This poor one is a member of the kingdom of God. This poor one has a passport, and the passport testifies to his citizenship in the heavenly city, Jerusalem. He is loved with an infinite love, infinite in its height, its depth, its length, its width. This is one whose sins are fully forgiven for all eternity. He has a Father in heaven, a Father who is the Creator and the Lord of time and space and all creation. This lowly man may be dressed in the apparel of poverty and humiliation. He may look like an orphan. He may smell like an orphan. He may appear to be a child of the street. He may have no family or friends, but he belongs to Jesus. He is a child of God. And the world will ignore him and pass over him and despise him. The upper crust will ignore him. He will be unseen by those with abundance. But he, don't you be mistaken, he is a child of God. He belongs to the great shepherd. Let every suffering believer, let every poor believer, let every every afflicted believer believe this. Despite your current condition, you belong to Christ. You are a beloved child of God. And that's your current status and your position. And nothing in heaven, on earth, or in hell can ever change that. You're a child of God. But his exaltation has another component. He is a child of God, this lowly brother. And he's also an heir to heavenly riches. Look at chapter 2. I want to keep pointing out these connections where James will say it again. But in chapter 2, verse 5, another word to this lowly person. Listen, my beloved brothers. 
Has God not chosen those who were poor in the world to be rich in faith, heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? So this lowly brother, his glory is in the fact that he is a child of God and he is an heir to the kingdom of God. Now he looks destitute. He has no home. He's on the road. He wears the same clothes every day. His shoes are worn out. And yet he is a multi-billionaire even more. Even more. He is an heir to the Lord Jesus. Don't let appearances fool you. This brother has a bank account. It's a very special bank account. You have a bank account. If you're married, you probably have a joint account, don't you? I have a joint account. I just established another account the other day. And the account says, Michael Calvert and Carol Calvert. This brother has a joint account. And you know what the names on the account are? Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And the name of that lowly brother. This lowly brother is a joint heir with Jesus. A joint heir. This lowly brother is co-owner of the account that bears the name of Jesus. That's why the word of God will say repeatedly that we are fellow heirs with Christ. Joint heirs with Christ. And this account is one that's unlike any other account because on deposit on this account, there is an infinite quantity of blessings and wealth and treasures. And if you were to take the checkbook on this account, it would have an infinite number of checks and you could never exhaust it. You never have to worry about running out of either resources or checks because this is an eternal account. It is infinite, as infinite as God is. We, Paul says, have obtained an inheritance in Christ. We are heirs to the glorious inheritance of the saints. Peter will say that the inheritance that we have, that this lowly brother has, is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven. The Fort Knox of all Fort Knoxes. Now, this lowly brother is to look up and exalt in that. He may look lowly, but he is immeasurably blessed and privileged. And you know what? When the Lord returns, this lowly brother is going to be revealed for who he truly is. Think of what, think of what John, the beloved disciple, said in his first epistle. And apply it to this lowly brother whom the world looks on with derision and thinks is of no account, Jesus will come, says John. Behold, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him just as he is. Not only will this lowly brother inherit all the riches that belong to Christ in eternity, this lowly brother will be glorified. And he will no longer look lowly. <laughs> he will look like Jesus. And so do you see why James says, count it all joy 
when you suffer. There's a very direct and reassuring word here for all of those among us this morning who would say, my situation is not so pleasant. In one way or another, you would identify with this lowly brother. The word of God for you today is, there is a greater reality about you that you must keep in view. Things are not what they seem to be. Now you need, and and I need, to ask God for wisdom to see who we really are and to see all that God has granted us in Christ and to see how our lives are going to play out in the future. But, But I must see it this way so that I could be content and have peace in whatever circumstance God has placed me in his wisdom and in his love. And there's something else here that we, that we have to say, and this may initially be, be hard to swallow because it goes against the current of our thinking sometimes. But our earthly situation may not change. It may not. There is no promise here that this lowly brother will ever be anything but a lowly brother until Jesus comes. There is no promise that my suffering or my adversity will be taken away. It may, and we pray for that. But there's no certainty that if I just pray that the Lord will make all unpleasant things go away. The Lord may say to you in your suffering, he may say to me in my suffering, my grace is sufficient for you. He might say that. True, authentic Biblical, New Testament, Jesus faithful Christianity does not promise you your best life now. It promises you exaltation. It promises you that in the end, Jesus wins. And we win too. Your health may stay, may stay the same or worsen. It might. Your struggle may not be abated or even it may intensify. Peace may not come in that difficult relationship you have. That deep burden that you were awakened by this morning may not be fully taken away. But that doesn't change the reality of who you are and what God has in store for you. A wise, mature faith sees things this way. We don't need God to always heal us or deliver us instantly. We need him sometimes to produce endurance and to bring glory not by giving us a solution but by giving us strength to bear the weight that his loving hands have wisely placed upon us. We have a father We have eternal life. We have a family. We have the truth of God's word, the presence of God's spirit, the consolation of God's people. We know where we're going and how we're going to get there. We have been accepted in the beloved. We belong to Jesus. And despite all appearances and all emotions, we are rich beyond the wildest dreams. And in the eyes of Jesus, we are healed with the ultimate healing. We've been given eternal life. And now do you see why we can boast? Do you see why boasting and glorying in that is so critical as a first step when things go wrong? It helps us see things the way they are. 
And then the Lord will produce the blessed Christ-like virtue of endurance. And he will be glorified. And the gospel will advance. And so rejoice and give thanks and trust the Lord and believe what he says about who you are and where you're going. Amen. May God bless his word.